This podcast is sponsored by Palmer's, the UK's number one cocoa butter brand. Hi everyone and welcome back to series three of Black Women Rising, the Untold Ganta Stories. Thank you all for tuning in to the last episode. We really appreciate the love, the support, the shares and we're just so grateful for all of that. Today we have a special guest and it's Toral Shah who's actually done quite a bit of work alongside us and we're so grateful for her joining us. Toro is a nutritional scientist, functional medicine practitioner, and she's a three times breast cancer survivor. She does a lot of work and research surrounding risk reduction of breast cancer and reoccurrence, as well as looking into inequalities in healthcare. Today, our focus is going to be surrounding nutrition. Toro, that was a lot. My goodness, you do so much. Thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm great. I mean, it's it's very cold and rainy in London, but, you know, no one knows it's summer, but there you go. But I'm good. <laughs> what does your role as a nutritional scientist and functional medicine practitioner involve? Thank you. That's a really great question. So many people don't know, including my family. So... Just as a background conversation, I originally went to medical school. I really wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an oncologist. I knew from the age of 11, I wanted to work with cancer patients. But when I got there, it was quite different to how I imagined. But more importantly, my mother had breast cancer. And watching my mum go through breast cancer and what the oncologist did with you know, giving a chemotherapy and the hormone treatment, all that sort of stuff, I suddenly thought, that is not the job for me. But I did yeah. start to wonder at the same time, like, how can we use diet and lifestyle to support people through their treatment, but also beyond? Um, so eventually I worked in research for a while. I didn't finish, I left medical school, I worked in research, and then I um, decided to do a master's in nutritional medicine. And so that led me to, after I completed the master's, thinking, what do I do with it? It was very early days, it was sort of only 2006, seven, and, and that was impacted by breast cancer, which I will share more about later. But yeah. understanding how nutrition and lifestyle can not only help us to recover but also the science behind you know, risk reduction of different diseases not just cancer but also heart disease and different diabetes yeah. and things like that it made me start to really think about how do we use this and in those days people were interested but now everyone's interested in nutrition how they can use that yeah. and the functional medicine is really looking at the root cause of why we get disease rather than treating the symptoms which allopathic medicine often does so putting all of that together, I see patients on a one-to-one basis, mostly cancer patients right now, um, all women's health problems. Um, I also do a lot of kind of speaking and talking on podcasts and consulting for different kind of food and health brands and, and, and lots of work with cancer charities, particularly in the world of inequalities in cancer care, because we know sadly, yeah. that marginalized groups, including people of color, have much poorer outcomes. And why is this? What do we need to do? Why do we, where do we need to go back to the research? How do we educate people? How do we raise awareness? So I have a really, really varied role. I love my one-to-one patients. I also love working with groups. I have an integrative breast cancer course starting uh, in, in June. So people who have anyone's had breast cancer can join that. And it's a group session which we could all support each other because I'm going alongside it with you. And then working with these organizations to help address these inequalities. And it means that I have quite a different day each day, but it also means I'm helping people and it keeps it fresh. 
I love that. And you know what? You're one of those people I see is always consistently busy, like doing doing something. And I love that. I love that you're always doing the work. So and also having time to enjoy yourself. So, it's so important yeah. to have that balance, right? We all need to have fun and let our hair down, whatever that might look like. Yes, I agree with that. So can you tell us about your personal experience with cancer, please? So at the end of the Masters in Nutritional Medicine, I found a lump. That lump turned out to be uh, early stage breast cancer, mostly DCIS, which is ductal carcinoma in situ, but with some kind of invasive early ductal carcinoma, all in the milk ducts of the breast. And so I had a mastectomy. I was quite borderline for having chemotherapy and radiotherapy, so they decided not to do that. Um, and then had hormone treatment. Part of the reason why they decide not to do that is once you've had one line of chemotherapy, you can't use it again. And bear in mind, by that point, we were realizing that we have a familial risk of breast cancer and we won't, can't figure it out why. But um, I think at that point, maybe 10 people in my family had breast cancer, all in the right side, all similar. Now there's about 14 or 15. Um, so we already knew that. So they, the, the, the doctors were very conscious of that. And then yeah. fast forward, I had 12 and a half years cancer-free. Um, and normally people sort of think if you're five years free, you're kind of okay. You're 10 years free, you're okay. But my cancer came yeah. back after 12 and a half years, which is a really long time. Again, I could feel a little kind of some sort of the scar just felt odd. I can't say anything more than that. Um, and that yeah. was in 2018. And we noticed there was a tiny little lump, um, less than two centimeters in the skin where it had a skin sparing mastectomy. So they just removed that. At that time, again, it didn't need chemotherapy for sure because it hadn't spread anywhere to the lymph nodes. The conversation then was, do we do radiotherapy or not? Now, where where the lump was, they were just conscious about giving me radiotherapy and that, that can increase your risk of lots of other cancers <laughs> as you get older. Yeah. And if you're young, that's one of the kind of side effects of having radiotherapy. And also it can impact your heart depending where you're kind of... Um, tumor is and where, where it needs to be treated so they decided not to do it. then we did notice there was a pet scan that wasn't quite right at 2020 february 2020 just before the pandemic and whilst we were yeah. investigating it obviously the world fell apart um yeah. and the, the ball was dropped so unfortunately it, it kind of got left both from from both ends until i started having severe pain in my sort of shoulder area in um august 2020 so it took September, October, a couple of months for, for people to really take me seriously. And I said, look, something's not right. And again, I couldn't describe what it was other than there was a lot of pain. I could feel the scar. I had a bit of dermatitis and I'm not, I'm not one of those people that gets those kind of skin issues. Yeah. And so I knew something was wrong because it was just odd for me. Eventually I did get diagnosed and, um, and grown all along the scar. So seven centimeters, I was trying to grow into the muscle, but it didn't. And, um, because I'd already had a mastectomy and I didn't have much skin left, I had to have, again, effectively another mastectomy, but remove the implant that I'd had. And it was time to have a Dieppe flap reconstruction where they take the tummy, fat, skin, and blood vessels to help rebuild your breast. So that's quite a major surgery. Mine took, it took, normally takes about six to eight hours. Mine took nine and a half <laughs> for various reasons. Um, and then, then the conversation was, you know, do we do chemotherapy, which they were suggesting. But I felt like they were throwing the whole kitchen sink at it because they'd left it for so long and they felt you know yeah so i decided not to have chemotherapy because it had, again it was hadn't spread to the lymph nodes anywhere um and anything that was there has removed so we had 
we kind of did an extended version of radiotherapy, which was a much wider area to catch any stray cells. And then I did hormone treatment again, um, which I have now given up. But so far, PET scans showing that any kind of nodes that were looking a bit active, you know, reducing uptake, there doesn't seem to be cancer anywhere else. So it's all going in the right direction. And I only had that scan a couple of weeks ago. So I'm starting to finally feel like I'm able to move forward. And part of that is moving from three monthly scans to six monthly and everything being a bit more stable. So three times breast cancer before the age of 45 is a lot. Um, And that kind of goes back to this whole family risk of breast cancer but we don't have any of the known um bigger breast cancer mutation genes but there's obviously a risk somewhere in our family yeah wow like when you break it down like that it is it's a lot to go through and and you know you're, you've gone through it and at the same time you're still there like supporting other women and stuff it's just yeah and same helps you you know part of this going through it again and again I learn so much every single time and different things and yeah I do feel I don't say it's a you know I would I wouldn't wish this upon anybody but I do feel that the more I've learned from it has helped me to help other people and to delve deeper um it's maybe a different person it's been very very tough last year doing it in a pandemic where we were in the lockdown in the UK um was really tough because obviously friends and family couldn't visit and I was by myself and it was horrible and no one could witness my pain because people didn't realize how major the surgery was because they didn't see me that I couldn't walk for like five to six weeks and I was crawling around you know because people just didn't physically see it so they just assumed that I was okay and that I wasn't okay um but I think the fact that I can use my experiences combined with my studying and my knowledge to help others makes it all a little bit more palatable. Not, I'm not saying I, I would wish it again, but like it does make me yeah. think. Okay, well, maybe there's a reason for going through this. I hear you. It's been, I guess, a huge learning experience. So, what sort of impact did nutrition have on your journey? So, when I first had breast cancer, I was quite slim, lean. I was doing triathlons. I was in really good shape. Um, I didn't have very much extra body fat on me. Um, and I used, you know, I was in really good shape and not just physical shape, but just mental shape as far as, okay, we know all this stuff, let's do it. And I was able to really use what we knew in science to eat really well. So, you know, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, you know, eat lots of antioxidant rich food, polyphenol rich food. And it's really interesting because we can't prove anything because you can't do an experiment on it. But one of the, the things that the doctors and I have discussed, that my surgeon's I've had some of the same team for the last 15, 16, well, 16 years now, um, is that, that nutrition really helped me to heal more quickly. Obviously, being younger and fitter and healthier generally helped as well. I'm not going to lie. But it did mean that, you know, I was able to recover and get to being a new normal more quickly, potentially. Obviously, being, you know, 29, 30 made a massive difference too because you just heal your wounds more you know more easily but it also gave me ownership as well it gave me something to do it was like okay well I mean what was interesting I was already writing my master's dissertation on the impact of nutrition and diet you know lifestyle on the reoccurrence of breast cancer and so I already had been reading and writing all this stuff so I was able oh, to put wow. into practice. And what was interesting is I then subsequently couldn't write this, the dissertation for a good few years and had to come kind of park it and come back to it. But 
um, just having had that knowledge made a real difference. And obviously, I don't have an identical twin who had cancer at the same time. And, you know, I can't do some sort of experiment. But I will say that that exercise, like getting back into exercise quickly too, like throughout yes. my sort of surgeries, I had about four or five surgeries and the hormone treatment. And I, I know I was lucky I didn't have chemotherapy at the time. But I was exercising throughout all of that. And I was, you know, in between surgeries, I did a triathlon. And I was like, okay, well, you know. So I do think it helped me. I think having that focus really helped me, if nothing else. But from a scientific perspective, now knowing now what I know, I'm like, oh, wow, I was doing all the right things, even if I didn't understand why I was doing them. So that's yes. made a huge difference. That's something that I even found within my own journey because of even with me having cancer so young, like nutrition and exercise and all those things, they played like a huge part in my healing journey. And... At the time, I didn't really know why I was doing it, but then I blew back as well. And I'm like, it's like I was just able to do the right thing at the right time and just grateful for that, to be honest. But cause for me, I felt like the treatment really affected my digestive system as well. So it was really important. Absolutely. And I think sometimes we know our own, as much as doctors know the medicine better and the science better, but we yeah. know our own bodies better. We are experts in our bodies and we need to trust that yeah. too. That's true. Even like what you said, when you, you felt something wasn't right by your scar tissue, like you couldn't explain it, but you just know, like it's having that kind of self-awareness that's just so important with the body. So why do you believe that nutrition is important for both prevention of primary and recurrence of cancer? I mean, I've always believed this, but now what's interesting is the evidence is there. So if we look at the World Cancer Research Fund, which kind of collates a lot of the research that's happening around the world and the American Institute of Cancer Research, they've collated studies from over 12 million women around the world in different countries, not just Western world, but, you know, Asia, Af you know, all sorts of places. And they've looked at what women have been eating pre-breast cancer and like, you know, even post-breast cancer. And when we look at that epidemiological evidence, we can start to put things together to understand what it is. So we know that eating a diet high in fiber with loads of fruits and vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds, really important, not just for breast cancer, but for all cancers. Um, yes. have, having a diet that's full of colorful, you know, fruits and vegetables, really important for estrogen negative cancer. Eating lots of dark leafy greens, um, and calcium-rich food, again, helps reduce the risk of breast cancer reoccurrence. Um, having a diet um, which is, you know, rich in vitamin D, we know there's a real link between vitamin D. And for people of color, that's so problematic because in the UK and the US, we don't get enough vitamin D from just the latitude. So we need to supplement. And, and, that's, and that's really important. So yeah. now we're starting to have followed these people for 20, 25, 30 years, and we have this evidence. So we can really make good recommendations. We know that you know, diets high in calcium are really important for postmenopausal women. We know that diets um, actually um, rich in kind of fermented dairy products support premenopausal women with prevention and reoccurrence of breast cancer or reduce risk reduction. So I think it's... It was a feeling I had. Then the evidence started to come out. And this evidence started to become apparent from 99, 2000, when I started to get involved in nutrition. And then as the years have gone on, there's become more and more evidence to the point where, you know, people are just taking this much more seriously. Because even 10 years ago, people didn't, oncologists and, you know, different cancer um, doctors didn't necessarily take 
now they're much clearer that they might not understand, but there's definitely a point of things we can do. And all of this kind of global research has made a huge difference. And on a personal note, like if you've got, I mean, let's just take surgery. If you've had surgery, you need the cut to heal. So what do you do? You provide it with more protein. You provide it with zinc. You provide it with lots of fruit and vegetables, all the building blocks, so your body can actually do its job. Because if you don't provide the building blocks, it's like if you're building a house, if you didn't have enough bricks, you wouldn't be able to build the house, would you? So it's the same sort of analogy. I love that analogy. (laughs) It just makes everything make sense. And... Uh, when you said that to you about how things have changed and times have changed, it just reminds me of how when at the beginning of my treatment, no questions were really asked. But then when I go back to my um, appointments now, they actually ask me, what are you eating? Like They want to know what I've been eating and stuff like that. Whereas in the beginning, that didn't concern them at all. So you're right, they really are, you know, trying to dig deeper. And also, I think just generally, the whole world is much more interested in nutrition and lifestyle, not just the bodybuilders in the gym. Like, it's it's yeah. become like a really, it's been like really common. And, you know, every magazine that you might pick up a health has something about nutrition and gut health and blah, blah, yeah. blah. And like 10 years ago, that just wouldn't have been the case. So it just shows how much the world has shifted. And I think we've relied on, you know, I think in our grandparents' age, it would have been completely different. They were just eating food from the field straight into their plates. And, yeah. And now it's like, you know, we just have all this processed food everywhere. So the environment's changed. So, I mean, this brings us on very nicely to, to kind of the next kind of conversation point. But I think that, that that change has meant that, and it happened very quickly within 30 or 40 years. So like yeah. our parents kind of lifetime, you know, from our grandparents to, to us. So that's impacted us. And then we've had to suddenly figure out, oh my God, that's affected our health overall, yeah. not just with cancer. So, yeah. Yeah. And that does bring us nice. And like you said, like, can you tell us about traditional diets and how they can be healthy and aid in the prevention of cancer? I think what's really interesting is that our, all of our traditional diets, whether you look at Black Afro-Caribbean people, African people, South Asian people, East Asian people, we've all got amazing traditional diets, which are packed full of vegetables, essentially, like peasant food. Yeah. Now, yeah. the problem is that... There's two elements there. One, in the Western world, what's become a healthy diet is very much a white diet and doesn't include any of these traditional foods. But also, as we become more developed as societies, uh, our, even our traditional diets have kind of gone by the wayside for favour of high-fat, highly processed, highly sugary food. And that's just development of the world. Now, when we yeah. go back to our traditional diets, they're all based on... Uh, complex carbohydrates. So let's say in like Kenya, Uganda, be ugali, which is made of like a corn porridge. Let's look at in South Asia, it could be, if you're North, then it'll be like whole grain chapatis or millet chapati. If it's South Asia, it'll be rice. You look at East Asia, it's rice or kind of, you know, noodles. So we have to look at Africa, breadfruit, you know, all of plantain, all of those things. So these are all complex carbohydrates with actually loads of other nutrients. Plus we ate a lot of vegetables and then we had small amounts of meat and fish if our diet suggested that or dairy or whatever it might be. And that was essentially a healthy diet. So if we go yeah. back to our traditional foods, um, there is a lot of healthy food we can be eating there. And again, it's just avoiding that kind of high fat, highly sugared, highly processed food. But many of our traditional dishes are actually so nutrient dense 
they're really supportive of um you know cancer risk reduction diets but also like something like if you compare them to the mediterranean diet pyramid like the diet pattern it fits into that because the base of that mediterranean diet pattern is a whole load of fruit and vegetables, whole grains, yeah. nuts, seeds, legumes. I mean, we eat way more legumes in, in the rest of the world than in the Western world. So that's so important in itself. So that is how we can use traditional diets to bring our food and our flavors. And then the spices and things that we use, gosh, they're all packed with antioxidants. So let's bring using the ginger and the garlic and the spices, whatever they might yeah. be, because it's all great for us and it adds so much flavor so if you're even cooking simple food like vegetables with a little bit of meat or fish or whatever it might be it's going to add bags of flavor so it's going to be much healthier than some sort of processed ultra processed food yeah i remember there was a story that i learned in school about like um back in the days of i don't even know what century it was i want to say in the times of henry the eighth um they used to have big banquets to eat every day but they found that the, the richer people, the ones with royalty, were getting a lot more sicknesses and illnesses compared to the ones who weren't eating so much of those foods all the time because they couldn't afford it. So it was like they kind of learned like you kind of have to not have too many of these things. And when you do talk about like our ancestors, our grandparents, there wasn't excessively eating. Like I know my grandmother said, there was no fridge, so you didn't have meat every day, three times a day, you know, so, yeah, and, very true. Yeah, how we store that. Also, you know, being poorer, you you kind of did, and also, you know, working in the fields and, like, yeah. buying, you know, what was in season and just eating it there and there, you just either grow it yourself or buy it from the local vegetable person. You know, it, it, all of that's changed and with yeah. supermarkets and things like that. I'm not saying that, you know, we go back to that, but, like, I think we're – needing to be a bit more in tune with our kind of diet and what where our food comes from and what we eat and and sometimes you know genetically as much as we're all similar 99.9 percent whatever ethnicity are you know genetically we all need different food so you know for example some indians um aged south asians may be better at extracting protein from vegetarian food if they've been vegetarian for generations so i think we have to think about this like the vitamin d thing like you know, all of us have moved in from the UK to the UK, literally within one or two generations. Some of the yeah. issues that we're having might be massively linked to this lack of vitamin D because we didn't know much about it. And really, it's only been a conversation for the last few years when it comes to public health. Yeah, it's so true. When I mean, you do look at the statistics, it does literally say majority of, you know, black people have a vitamin D deficiency. So... Yeah, you're right. And I recommend that it's that we're not outside playing, we're inside working or doing whatever we're doing. And so, you know, even in the summer, we need to be supplementing. Yeah. Um, Black and brown people just need to be supplementing, you know, most of the year with vitamin D because, you know, requirements are, are also higher sometimes. Very true. Have you got any tips for energy boosting foods whilst you're on treatment? I think that's a really great question. I think, first of all, it's so individual because some things make some people sick and other things don't make other people sick. But I think when you're feeling nauseous and you can't eat much food, the trick is try and eat something, a little bit of something. So everyone's different and like people are going to crave different things. So, in you know, culturally, you might crave some sort of rice dish or rice pudding or some sort of like comfortable thing like that. For me, things like 
toast with peanut butter, you know, energy dish, but like not just white, not supermarket bread, but like making sure I had a nice piece of sourdough. So I've got the grains yeah. in there and we're having that peanuts. Um, I think filling your fridge with good things and eating a little bit and frequently. So, so for yeah. me, I know things like having smoothies where, you know, it was, and it's not something I necessarily suggest all the time, but I do think that, um, doing those times when you're not feeling well, you haven't got enough energy or you're nauseous, having things like that is going to make a huge difference. Um, for I, one of the things that someone asked me about, asked me about quite frequently is what if you've got nausea? And I find that like things like ginger ale, I really like really diluted that still lemonade with loads of ice, but drinking it from a straw as opposed to from the glass, because for some reason it makes you feel slightly less sick. Sick. So I think it's just about working out, you know, and trying different things. And you know what? Not worrying too much. Obviously, you want to eat lots of fruit and vegetables and nutritious food, but it's really hard sometimes. I know even when I had COVID, I just didn't even want to eat my normal fruit and vegetables, which is why I knew I was sick. There was something wrong with me. I was craving pasta, and I don't even eat that much pasta. So I just ate the pasta, but with loads of fruit and vegetables in it, so that, you know, to make a difference. So just try and add a little bit. I think it's really hard, but you know what? You know, and maybe you don't eat that much, and maybe that you'll be okay. I know. I don't know if you had steroids, but they definitely affected like how I ate because and I was trying to eat everything and anything when I was on those steroids. They really increased the appetite. They do. And they really was, do. Yeah. And I think there's also steroids can also make you crave that kind of high fat, high sugary food. Yeah. So how do you navigate that? That's a really tough question. So firstly, I think having food prepared for you, healthy food. So for me, it was like roasting up lots of different vegetables and making salad dressings. and just, So at least if I had healthy food in the fridge, even if I got really hungry, I could eat that first before my head got yes. thinking about anything else. And I found that really useful. Traditional foods, like, you know, whatever you might have eaten, you know, traditionally, having those things ready, having them in the freezer, you could just quickly defrost them and microwave them. And then like limiting like the crisps and the chocolate and the, you know, desserts and stuff. Because the thing is, if it's in the house, you're going to eat it. If you're not feeling great, you're not, it's going to be another added step for you to, yeah, you could go out and buy it. And we all live near shops yeah. these days. But if you have the fiction of not having it in the house, it makes it a little bit easier to not eat it. And I think just being really conscious of when you eat as well, like your if you know that you get really hungry after exercise and you know that that coincides with your steroid, make it all happen. That, so it's like you're super hungry straight after exercise. So you know it's time for you to eat anyway. So just thinking a little bit more carefully around that and making lots of healthy food and putting it in your fridge. But also just food that's just like nutritious and that you can just warm up keeping it ready and keeping it so because the thing is when you have to start thinking about it, you're never going to reach for the healthy option you're always going to reach no. for the easiest option so if you have it ready in the fridge already out on the table then you're going to have that so a bowl of grapes like yeah a bowl of like nuts and seeds just having all those like sort of healthier type snacks ready i'm not saying it's less in calories or not but it's just more thinking about it's got fiber it's got nutrients in it so have those instead and yeah there is going to be potentially some weight gain um and it's it's hard because you know your body is trying to heal itself. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's important to not be too harsh on yourself. But I love that gem that you gave there, which was, you know, preparing things and you know so that you are ready to have something healthy in those times. I like that. So, I know you have done some research regarding insulin resistance and breast cancer in black women. And you tell us more about this connection. 
So this is more kind of just collating some of the evidence I've found. And firstly, anyone who is diabetic is 20% more likely to have breast cancer. And that's a statistic that most people don't know about or talk about. So just by having type 2 diabetes, you are just more likely to have breast cancer. And maybe we need to talk about that because in our communities of black and brown women, people do have diabetes. And that's linked to so many different aspects. Sometimes it's being overweight and obese, but just so many different aspects of life. The other thing that was found in all these studies was that black women that had chemotherapy were more likely to gain weight after chemotherapy than white women and to hold on to that weight and partly because they became more insulin resistant. This means that your body's not using insulin, your kind of digesting hormone, not digesting hormones, your insulin, you know, breaking things down to glucose as efficiently. And we need to learn a lot more about this. Um, the other link that was quite interesting is that more black women have triple negative breast cancer. Triple negative has less forms of um, treatment right now because we can't you know, use Herceptin, we can't use estrogen treatments like Tamoxifen, and it seems yeah. to be more aggressive and grow more quickly. And it also seems to grow in a completely different way to these other breast cancers. Now, what is the link with that? Potentially, there's a link between um, inflammation and stress we still need to do the research. Black women who live in the UK and US are subject to quite a lot of systemic racism and st other types of stress. The socioeconomic yeah. things, there's all sorts of things. So is there a link? And I think we need to do more research. And until we really break down these health inequalities, we're not going to understand that. And the, the, the studies are showing the same thing in the UK and US. And I'm focusing on these countries because that's where the most um, kind of evidence is coming from. But it's not the yeah. same in Africa. And that's an interesting for me. We're not getting, we're still getting more triple negative, but we're not necessarily getting the same things from um, systemic racism or, um, you know, socioeconomic. So we really need to understand a little bit more about this. But this insulin resistance could be due to sometimes our diets. I'm not talking about our ancestral, traditional, traditional diets, but the diets that we're having generally at the moment are more carbohydrate rich and not as protein rich and not as fiber rich. So maybe that's the other part of the equation. So how do we help educate our communities with A, what they need to be eating generally anyway, B, being more breast aware, and C, like being able to go to a doctor and feel like they're heard, because we know that women of color are going to GPs at least two more times before they are sent off for testing and diagnosis. And that's problematic. Yeah. Especially the young women as well. Absolutely. First of all, with the young women, you're like, oh, you're too young. I mean, I had that every time. Yeah. I mean, the first, oh, yeah, it went on for weeks. Luckily, my mum, you know, is in the medical field and works in the hospital. So I was able to kind of get me in a bit more quickly through kind of a backdoor situation. But that shouldn't have been happening. And now it's still like, oh, you're too young. Oh, no. You know, when I had my rare curse in 2018, they're like, oh, no, there's no way. I was like, well, I'm telling you. It took me so many phone calls and so many uh, kind of, points of contact yeah. to advocate for myself. And I've got the energy and the knowledge, so I'm able to do that. And I don't have kids, and I don't have a husband, and i got the time as well. But you can't just get... If someone tells you, oh, look, there's nothing wrong with you, after one or two times, people are going to start believing that. So again, we need to start changing the attitudes of, let's listen to younger women. Let's listen to women of colour. Let's just listen to women full stop. You know, we know there's huge disparities between women and men in, in, in all ethnicities. So let's just take women's... Seriously, if you think about the whole menopause conversation, women have not been taken seriously for decades, years. You know, this has been happening forever. And, 
It's only now that we're getting the research and like, oh God, we need to do something about menopause. And we know that cancer treatment often you know, puts people into early menopause. So, you know, they're navigating that. So let's try and understand. Let's try and look at some of these things. Why are more black women getting you know, triple negative breast cancer? What is this link with insulin resistance? Let's try and understand. Let's do some more experiments and understand that just because it doesn't involve other people doesn't mean it's not important research. 100%. For someone who is like newly diagnosed or right now going through treatment, is there any tips? that you could give them regarding nutrition to help them at this time? So I think the, the, the risk is when someone's newly diagnosed is they go immediately to Google and find all sorts of cancer bloggers and then follow some crazy diet. Don't do that. Please see yeah, someone like a dietitian or, or you know, a qualified nutritionist because they'll be able to help you, especially someone that specialises in cancer. Other people yeah. just don't understand, A, what the cancer treatments are and what your body actually needs, and B, someone who actually understands what your lifestyle is and what you're eating, and then they can help you slowly shift it to a diet that's more kind of risk-reducing for you. And that might be different. And I think it's very easy to jump on Google and be like, okay, I'm going to become a raw food vegan, but maybe our body <laughs> needs, you know, maybe our body needs protein. Where are we going to get that from? You know, all of these things. So my tip is like, if you're going to use Google, use it judiciously. Like ask other people for, um, you know, for advice about who to go to. I mean, the great thing is you're providing so many great resources, um, and that's just so important. Like, like speak to other people with the same kind of experiences with you. Um, find out if there's any peer support groups because they're also going to have their own experience and be able to share important information for you too. Yeah, I agree with that and. Also, just to say that everyone's journey is so unique. Everyone's nutritional needs are so unique. So I wouldn't push something on yourself if it doesn't feel right. Really listen to your body. Because I know there's so many times where we read that this thing is amazing for this person or that person. And we try it, wanting for it to work for us. But if it's not working, please don't continue with these things. 100%. We're all, you know, so different genetically. Like I've done my own genomic testing and I can see what foods are, you know, better for me, but they may not be right for other people and vice versa. I can see which pathways don't work as well. So I'm going to need to either eat more of those foods or supplement. Like for me, eating those cruciferous vegetables and those brassica vegetables, like the broccoli and the cauliflower and, you know, dark leafy vegetables is so important because I know what's not quite working as well for me. Um, so I think it's about knowing your own body, being able to listen to it, but also knowing that there is, it takes time. You don't have to do it all immediately. Yeah, that's an important message. Well, thank you so much. Where can people find find you, find out more about your research, everything? So um, I have got a website, www.theurbankitchen.co.uk. I also have um, an Instagram profile at The Urban Kitchen. I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm often doing Twitter chats and sharing research and information at The Urban Kitchen. And I will be popping up at, you know, all sorts of talks and any cancer related events. And I think every now and then you'll see me at Black Women Rising or Future Dreams House or anywhere like that. Come and find me. I am running regularly now an integrative breast cancer course. Uh, it's a six week program for anyone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. It's very culturally competent and inclusive. So really useful for black and brown women. Plus, I give scholarships to black and brown women. I've got two scholarships to give away. Um, and we really go through diet, 
lifestyle, sleep, stress, exercise, your environment, and all of those things that you can do to help reduce your risk of the breast cancer coming back and helped with recovery. So I hope that you all come and find me there. Wow. Please, everyone, if you're listening, utilize these links, these resources, and total thank you so much. You're such a fountain of knowledge. I really appreciate having you come and bless the podcast. Like, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on again. And I'm sure we'll find something else to talk about next year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, have a lovely you evening. You too. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by Palmer's, the UK's number one cocoa butter brand.